and welcome to another episode of Policy Pod. In this edition, we'll be speaking to Dr. Lisa Ballard about her windy path to becoming the Senior Research Fellow on the Clinical Ethics, Law and Society Research Group here at the University of Southampton. So without further ado, on to the first question. So let's start right at the beginning. Um, what did you do for your A-levels? So A-levels were psychology, sociology and business studies. Um, but I only really enjoyed psychology I think and that was reflected in the grades I got and I didn't really have a plan to go to university um I think I did A-levels because that was what everyone else was doing and um yeah did my A-levels and everyone else went off to university and I kind of thought I'm not academic that's not for me and so I just went straight into a job so my A-level choices were a bit kind of arbitrary just kind of what I fancied really (laughs) So what was the first job? Oh, um, so my first job actually was working at Vision Express. Oh, very good. Yes, okay as a glasses say? wearer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, I worked for Vision Express. I worked there for 12 years actually. Right, okay, yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's, that's a big first uh, uh, first job. So what, when, you know, when, when one settled into a, into a job, what, what prompted the, uh, the move after, after 12 years to, uh, to do something else? So it, it must have been after about four or five years in the job. Um, yeah, so when I was about 23, I um, I think I was suffering from depression, but didn't quite know it. Um, and I, I distinctly re- remember this one morning when I was driving to work and I would have quite liked it if a car crashed into me. I could have felt so stuck and unfortunately working for like a corporate retail company is quite soulless you're literally just making money for a company and I felt that quite keenly and just thought I wish something would happen to take me out of this and it was at that point that obviously I reflected on that and thought this isn't good (laughs) no one should want a car to crash into them Um, and then thought I need to make a change and I thought um, a, a way to make a change is to increase my level of education mm-hmm. and so I considered doing a degree and I purely picked my degree on the fact that I really enjoyed psychology at mm-hmm. A-level and mm-hmm. seemed to do quite well at it and felt like it was something I could get interested in mm-hmm. so I spoke to my manager about going part-time and yeah um, did started my degree at Solent University mm-hmm. well it was the institute back then so um uh uh first degree kicks off and uh, and you're doing that alongside uh working which yeah. is no mean feat to be able to uh, uh, to pull off mm. what what happens when you get to the end of your uh, of your degree I mean the end or the 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 process of my degree and the end of my degree was a like pivotal moment for me like I said I just I didn't feel academic um, I no one in my family really went down those routes kind of feel like I'm from a working class family really and I actually did well in my degree mm-hmm. surpri- surprisingly well so I got a first mm-hmm. I got all the awards there were to, to win in my year got the best dissertation the best overall mark which just was hugely encouraging for my kind of confidence mm-hmm. and kind of said to me oh you know what the story you were telling yourself about not being at- academic isn't true mm-hmm. and my family were <clears throat> sorry <laughs> my family was so proud of me um and it really changed the way I saw who I was as a person and what I thought my capabilities were mm-hmm. so it was a massive pivotal moment for me um so a real like 
transformative uh, change that education can can bring where you you suddenly get really excited by a thing and also get recognized for your excitement and supported in being able to uh, uh, to do to do more exactly um so um uh, filled, filled with all of that excitement, um, a return to, to Vision Express perhaps didn't seem as much on the on the cards after that experience. So, what, what did you what did you think about doing um, after that? So, I mean, working for Vision Express was amazing actually because I'd worked up high enough to be able to get paid a decentish wage, which allowed me to work part time. <clears throat> but um, also, we were kind of um, kind of heavily influenced by the University of Southampton's health psychology masters. They came to talk to us. Um, and so I decided to do a master. So I actually carried on at Vision Express. So mm-hmm. although it kind of drove me to the point of being depressed, it also facilitated my educational attainment. So, you know, I used my wages to pay for my fees mm-hmm. and it supported me really. It gave me, you know, the support and the friendship and the like the teammanship to carry on in my education so then after my degree I went straight to University of Southampton mm-hmm. and did my master's in health psychology um, and I picked health psychology because we were heavily influenced by the, the, the people that came to, our, to to Solent but also because of all the disciplines in psychology it felt like the most kind of positive one clinical psychology is kind of heavily influenced by mental health um, and I'd done a placement at um, a private mental health facility in my degree and kind of was keenly aware of the it was like a very hard setting to work in mm-hmm. I was interested in positive psychology but couldn't see a career in that so health psychology which is basically the study of um you know the psychology of health and illness mm-hmm. seemed something that fitted with my values and my interests so that was my next step really so rapidly working through the um, higher education settings in uh, in good old Southampton in, in Hampshire, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what was uh, uh, following the uh, the end of your uh, of your masters? Where where did you look uh, next to, to pursue the next piece of education? So then I had a big gap because I like for some reason I decided to take the windy path to everything. So I didn't I didn't I think it was twenty three when I started my degree um, and. Yes, I was kind of late to education anyway, so a mature student. And then I um, took a job at UCL in London. So, uh, is that right? Yeah, took a job in UCL in London as a research assistant, um, which is around uh, smoking cessation, like Mm -hmm. pharmacy interventions, Mm -hmm. tailoring smoking cessation to people coming into the pharmacy. And that got me into smoking cessation. I'd already done my undergrad dissertation around smoking behaviour. and then I found a job back in Southampton in health promotion. So mm-hmm. then I found myself in health promotion services, working as a behaviour change specialist. Mm-hmm. So helping people in the priority neighbourhoods in Southampton, so the more deprived neighbourhoods, make healthy lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. And that was mainly around smoking cessation as well. So maybe that was five years into that, I thought, again, I'm feeling a bit trapped. I need mm-hmm. to make a progression again and decided... Um, to then I wanted to f- become like a qualify as a health psychologist mm-hmm. stage one of health psychology is your master's which I'd already done mm-hmm. so stage two was to do the um the, the, the doctoral part of it mm-hmm. I I did briefly try and do an independent route but then actually I got a place at um University of the West of England mm-hmm. in 2013 so then started my doctorate in health psychology alongside my full-time job in mm-hmm. health promotion mm-hmm. 
so I wonder just, you know, while we're um, uh, here with the um, uh, uh, with the studio lights on sitting in the, uh, uh, in the lovely campus at, uh, at Southampton University, that, you know, is there... Is there something that you would say to um, uh, to the you that thought that you weren't academic and that this wasn't a, a world which was which was open to you? Um, uh, uh, looking at the uh, the work that you do now and the uh, and the interest that you have, what 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 would you say uh, to uh, 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 to past you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like a therapy question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Gosh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think. I think maybe what I think is a like a health researcher and what other people think is a health researcher is kind of something I, I guess I thought it was unattainable, not for me. Like I'm not the kind of person that can do like I don't know, clinical genetics or working in genetics seems too hard or I'm not intelligent enough or, you know, I'm that's not for a person like me. And of course it can be a, for a person like anyone. I really believe that and I think it's yeah it's about um I guess kind of having those aspirations and also people like me communicating you know like it might look like we're all like here doing a thing but we've all got this backstory and my backstory is incredibly windy full of uh not being confident about anything um you know full of not being encouraged to be aspirational like at school I guess and um you know how important it is for I think we all have a responsibility really in academia to to be more transparent Mm -hmm. and and show that you can come from anywhere um and get get to any point well if you know if confidence wasn't holding you back, basically, yeah. Yeah, I think like as a uh, uh, as a fellow uh, uh, first in family to go to university, um, it's hard when there aren't the the role models. Um, you yeah. know, it feels that it isn't something which is for uh, is for you because you can't see people that that look or seem like you. Um, and uh, and you're completely right. It's the it's the confidence of being able to say this is uh, this is for me, and I'm going to uh, to take part in this because it's something that that interests me. Is the is the thing which is really needed to 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 push you on. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. agree. Uh, yeah, I guess I just want to acknowledge the fact that also I think we're still in quite privileged positions, even though we're first in family, and there are many other issues that we haven't experienced that would get in the way of this kind of journey, but. Um, yeah, have, yeah, us all having a responsibility to kind of communicate that. I think. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, um, in uh, during the course of your of your PhD, what was your what was your area of, of specialist, and what was the uh, the focus that was particularly of interest to? So, um, so a doctorate is slightly different to a PhD. So mm-hmm. I had four, um, five core competencies, um, and so things like the behaviour change element were still around smoking cessation because that was part of my job. But then the research part, I was lucky enough to then get a part-time job working at the um, University Hospital Southampton. Um, And that informed my research thesis. And that was looking at the lived experience of a rare disease called Silver-Russell syndrome. Okay. Um, So, yeah, that was kind of my thesis element of my doctorate. So tell us a bit more about... Silver Russell syndrome. Silver Russell syndrome, yeah. <laughs> so it's a rare genetic condition. Um, it affects um, babies and small children. It's called failure to thrive. So they are quite small when they're born, don't put on weight, 
they don't kind of grow at the rates you'd expect them to. Um, and they also have a particular kind of um, facial appearance. So especially when they're young, they've got kind of um, downturned mouth, um, like um, different shaped eyes. So they kind of maybe look a little bit different. And as they get older, that kind of slightly disappears, but then they end up with short stature. So they're kind of significantly shorter mm -hmm. than their peers. Um, and among other kind of physical elements as well. So my piece of research was looking at what is it like to live with that condition. So there've been lots of um, medical research, like clinical research into um, using growth hormone therapy and all the other kind of aspects that kind of affect their health, but nothing really had been done as to what is it like to live with that condition. And so I interviewed young people and adults mm -hmm. um, around the lived experience um, and kind of made recommendations then for more psychological support. It kind of, my research highlighted that um, some people with Silver Russell have appearance-related concerns, mm -hmm. so related to height and other kind of um, aspects of their appearance. And that wasn't really uh, kind of uh, considered in their clinical consultations. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that that formed my my primary research so that feels like a bridge between the qualitative work that you've done in your uh, in your studies and then moving into uh, uh, more focus on on genetic and, uh, and genetic conditions and i suppose that almost starts to bring us up to up to date with uh, with the project that you're working on at the moment so um uh, what's the name of the project that you're working on currently so um yeah you're right so that that project that i did for my doctorate um then got me into clinical genetics. So um, so six years ago, then I started with um, the research group I'm in now, so clinical ethics, law and society. Um, and so I guess I always find this question quite hard because I work on multiple projects mm -hmm. in my current role. So um, I can... I can explain a couple of them, mm -hmm. I guess. I don't know whether you were alluding to one mm -hmm. particular one. Let's start with... Uh, let's start working through them, I think. Okay. Uh, so... I guess when I think of my particular research, so the thing that kind of my niche in my um, research group is that I'm really interested in the familial communication of genetic health information. And I just find it really intriguing that um, when you have any kind of medical encounter, so you might go to the GP, they do some blood tests and things, those tests really mostly are just relevant to you, you and your health and your health outcomes. But actually, when you go and have a, a genetic test or a genomic test, that test says something about you. But because you share your DNA with your relatives, it then also may say something about your relatives as well. And so quite interestingly, in genetics, you have these ethical issues come up where a patient might go and have a genetic test. They get told that they're at risk of, say, a breast cancer gene or ovarian cancer gene like BRCA1 or 2, so the Angelina Jolie gene, as it's called. Right. Yeah. And then if they're found to have that gene or that um, yeah, um, genetic mutation, the, the person that they're speaking to will then say, well... Um, this might be of relevance to your siblings or maybe your children or your parents. And then that uh, responsibility is put onto the patient normally, mm -hmm. so for them to go and communicate that to their mm -hmm. relatives. And that communication is of particular importance because you might have relatives that 
um, unbeknownst to them, are at risk of this gene. And especially something like BRCA1 or 2, if you're found to have a risk of it, you can then be screened Mm -hmm. to have more screening, um, have more um, prophylactic treatment like surgeries Mm -hmm. or medications. And so not knowing your risk could significantly Mm -hmm. impact your morbidity and mortality. And um, so, oh. uh, but, that, but that puts on uh, a huge amount of pressure to the person who's just received a diagnosis to then be the messenger to their loved ones while they're also processing what this means for for them as well. Yeah. Um, it just seems incredibly hard. What what um, what support is is available for uh, uh, for people to be able to uh, to manage those conversations? Yes, yeah, so the. the- Support we have in the UK, I think, is pretty incredible. If you ever sit in on a genetic counselling kind of session, it's it's exactly that. So it's partly a medical consultation and partly kind of psychological support and counselling. And so no one will ever, if they're in a clinical genetic setting, will have a genetic test without being prepared beforehand. Mm-hmm. So it certainly will be a conversation that the a health professional has with the patient even before they've even drawn blood that you're the findings that we take here might have relevance to your family members and kind of try and prepare them. Mm-hmm. But you're right then, exactly what you said. It, that preparation can't really take away from the fact that then you get your test result comes back, it's positive, you've got that impact. And then there's a huge um, raft of literature around what makes it hard. So the barriers to a, a patient then communicating to their relatives. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's exactly one of those issues, isn't it? You can imagine that that huge pressure and that focus on yourself and you're thinking about your own health then to have to then deal with your relatives and maybe their emotional response and there's there's a there's multiple other reasons for why it might be hard or that communication is delayed or that communication isn't um all the information isn't communicated so that person doesn't realize the the kind of um importance of it mm-hmm. and so that's where my research comes in really um one thing i'm particularly interested in is interventions that make that behavior of communication mm-hmm. more likely so i've done that's a quite a big body of my work I had a a fellowship with Health Education England Mm -hmm. where I developed the kind of background and the content to to such an intervention and currently I'm um, writing a systematic review that looks at all the um, previous interventions Mm -hmm. Um, so I really think that that's that's like a cornerstone of my research Mm -hmm. Um, and also looking at um, the health professionals Mm -hmm. responsibility Mm so um, it's also something we I attend um, a forum called Genethics. So it's been Mm -hmm. running in the UK for about 20 years and it's an opportunity for anyone working in clinical genetics to come and um, air any ethical issues they have Mm -hmm. within a kind of safe Mm -hmm. forum space of like multiple different professions to kind of talk through the ethical issues and about 50% of those cases are are ones about familial communication. Mm -hmm. Um, And so even though there are guidelines, policies, um, and kind of some legal aspects to, mm-hmm. to the communication of that information, the, every case has slightly different contexts mm-hmm. and patients and uh, diseases, which make make it complicated and then people feel the need to come and discuss that. And it, I find it a very interesting area where responsibilities overlap and many uh, factors mm-hmm. come to play. So one one of the projects that I'm aware of is the uh, is the Epigen project. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that. So what what 
What what is the uh, uh, the project for the benefit of the listeners? So it's around ethical preparedness in genomic medicine. Um, and we've got kind of lots of arms of the project. So I could tell you a few different things that are going mm-hmm. on in it and then mm-hmm. it might illustrate really what, what we mean by ethical preparedness. So I think if you look at the literature around ethical preparedness, it's a bit of a slippery concept. And so mm-hmm. that's part of our project is to kind of maybe pin down and a bit define in a bit more detail what ethical preparedness is. Um, we've actually written a paper where we've um, used the COVID-19 contact tracing app and that familial communication in genetics as case studies where we've tried to um, define and flesh out that concept of ethical preparedness as a behaviour. So if a health professional was to be ethically prepared, um, what would that look like and, and what would that entail? And Actually, that's where kind of my health psychology background has kind of come in. So we've used a model called um, COMB. So the COM, C-O-M, stands for Capability, Opportunity and Motivation. And those three things need to be present for a behaviour to be enacted. So you need those three things for the behaviour of ethical preparedness. And so we've used that familial communication um, and the COVID-19 contact tracing app as kind of vehicles, really, to, to illustrate our... Um, definition of ethical preparedness but also we've got um, other projects Um, so my colleagues um, Kate Lyle and Susie Weller they're working on um, a project whereby they're looking at patients um, genomic journey so they're collecting longitudinal data from um, initially it was patients from the 100,000 genomes project but now it's patients from the new genomic medicine service Um, and they're so they're interviewing them at different time points and then they've done this wonderful um, collaboration with the participants where they've um, illustrated points in the journey. So they've kind of taken all of that data, kind of drawn out key concepts, mapped kind of what they think from like a researcher point of view, and then gone to the participants. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they've done this one with a, with a couple um, and and they were they had the opportunity to kind of see their journey mm. kind of all as one, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. Um, has been incredibly interesting. And then they've been refining it in collaboration with those participants. And so it kind of, it gets that, what it's really like to undergo a genomic um, test or that kind of genomic journey, really. And I think... Uh, as researchers we find that incredibly important um, we've done my, so one of my colleagues um, Rachel Horton has done a, um, an exploration of how genomics is portrayed in the media mm-hmm. and it's it kind of has this very positive uh, deterministic you know it's going to tell you all the answers but then actually when you're a patient immersed in that journey it isn't quite as the media might portray it mm-hmm. Um so that's another project. Um, my colleague um, Kate Lyle is also working with um, the people that work in the lab. So the mm-hmm. the I didn't quite realise this until I started going to the genetics forum. But the lab people working in the lab, the lab scientists, are also grappling with ethical issues. So they might have a request for a test coming in and. They can see maybe, oh, wonder why this test is being done, like looking at a particular disease, looking at other um, family member data that they've got. And so so they have ethical issues and um, things that they have to deal with. And then they're communicating with the, 
the kind of clinician as well. Yeah. So she's doing um, some work around what's going on for them. And also um, we're looking at um, it, what's special or what's different or similar in the cascading of health information. So mm-hmm. that f- familial information being passed through families and other, other areas of medicine where that's happening. So you've got COVID and infectious disease where your st- disease status will get communicated to others by you or by a contact tracing app or another health professional and then also sexual health um so the processes that happen in that so we're looking at broadening that kind of definition of ethical preparedness into other of course it happens in other disciplines but how can we apply what's happening in genetics and genomics and then learn from other mm. kind of disciplines and their the ethical preparedness that happens in there and the ethical issues that they encounter what can we learn what can we kind of cross fertilize so that kind of conceptualizes epigen <laughs> so there's a there's a, a a huge amount of uh of of work which is going on in this um uh, in this theme at the moment um i wonder what what's the um what are the next stages that you'll be looking to uh, uh, to pursue with epigen so it's a continuing body of work really so my um the, the PI is Professor Annika Lucasen, and we're also, um, it's a collaborative award. So Epigen is also spans our colleagues at the University of Brighton. So they've um, got projects as well. And we kind of, you know, work on, kind of collaborate with each other. So the projects I'm describing to you are ongoing ones. Mm-hmm. So um, so the, the one where I was talking about learning from sexual health, infectious disease, that's kind of at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So we've still got a few years on, on that project. So, um, yeah. So you mentioned... Um you mentioned policy and guidelines, and this is uh, uh, this is policy pub where we get down into the weeds about the uh, the evidence that supports policy change. Um, now, with with the work that you've been doing, you're coming to some really interesting thoughts about what uh, uh, the role of policy in and of itself uh, for supporting uh, practitioners, um, uh, clinicians, and uh, and patients. Um, perhaps we could talk about that um, that that anti-policy or the edges of where policy is is Mm. is useful yeah so I think that is really interesting so the edges um and so I think the the things that we study in um our research group are really the the um bits where policy guidelines and law don't offer an easy answer um and I think like I've mentioned that kind of familial communication aspect and the the fact that it's an issue, an ethical issue that comes up for clinicians over and over again in the 20 years of the Genetics Forum. It keeps coming up and it and that kind of illustrates that even though there are there are policies and guidelines, um, so like one guidelines I can think of is the Consent and Confidentiality Guidelines in Genomic Medicine and it, it offers, uh, for those kind of easy uh, cases, it offers up a solution, but there are so many times where that are at the edges of those where um, you need something else, something else needs to be there. And often it is that kind of forum where health professionals can come and discuss with other colleagues and feel empowered to kind of make decisions for themselves, whereas deferring to the kind of black and whiteness of policies and guidelines isn't particularly empowering Mm -hmm. and maybe isn't the right solution for the patient that's at the end of those ethical issues as well. And I think that that's what's interesting about the work that we've just done where we've been trying to flesh out that 
definition of ethical parentness using a like an implementation behavior change model is that when we applied the, the combi model to the case study of familial communication actually what we found were that the the bits that are slightly missing um or actually no not the bits that are slightly missing the bits that are being offered by forums like genetics but aren't being offered by guidelines and policy mm-hmm. uh um things around the c and combi so the capability so that that feeling a person has about their own ability to resolve an ethical issue um, and also the opportunity. So the setting, the setting in which a person can be empowered to say, uh, I'm struggling with this or be empowered to think, well, I know what the, the solution is. I go to genetics or I go to a multidisciplinary meeting or I go to my clinical ethics committee in the mm-hmm. hospital. And and that is, isn't what policy and guidelines offer they offer the the educational part and the the knowledge part and they don't offer the capability part and and the setting part and that's the the bit that we really get into in Mm. our in our research group which is very interesting the 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 access to um uh, to these forum and and also to uh, uh to ethics committees is that something which is is that patchy across the across the UK, or is there availability for people to be able to share um, uh, these challenges with other uh, uh, fellow experts to to come to these resolutions? How how does that how does that yeah. work? Yeah, I mean, I don't know a huge amount of what what goes on around the country, but just even um, so, at the University Hospital Southampton, they've got a well established clinical ethics committee, and just from hearing from other colleagues who have gone to other ones, I think some of them are more kind of towards the legal side Mm -hmm. you know um whereas ours is much more dealing with the ethical issues um and as far as like the genetics forum goes that's like a a uk forum but actually covid has quite facilitated that because even though it's been going for 20 years um and the meetings try and kind of go around the country since covid we've been forced to go online and we get huge amounts of people, you mm-hmm. know, 200 participants, mm-hmm. even from different countries, right, accessing okay. genetics. Okay. And I, like I said, I can't really comment on what goes on in other countries, but just to know that there are people coming mm-hmm. from other countries to a UK genetics forum makes you think, well, maybe there isn't that kind of well-established. Um, and I think medicine often historically hasn't kind of, uh, acknowledge that that the, I guess you'd call it the softer. I don't like mm-hmm. that term, but I don't know how to describe it any other way. But kind of the the softer aspects of the you know the psychological and the social mm-hmm. aspect of medicine, um, and and these forums offer a, a place for those kind of on the edge of medical knowledge, you know, and you know clear guidelines. There's this all this stuff going on on the edge, and and that's what things like these forums and clinical ethics committees provide and I think it kind of goes against I think we all when we have a problem it goes against this urge we have we just want a clear dichotomous answer to things Mm -hmm. and you know as like our study and our research group shows there's so many complexities to things Mm -hmm. and that's uncomfortable for people Mm -hmm. but having these forums where you can come and discuss them and it is uncomfortable but um it that's okay yeah Uh, I think it's really useful
So thank you. So I think that that's a, that's a really useful place to uh, uh, to pause and reflect. In the show notes, we'll include a link to a recent uh, paper uh, that colleagues will be able to um, uh, 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 to read through, and some contact information for uh, uh, for the Epigen family of, of projects to be able to find out more more information. Um, but in the uh, in the meantime, thank thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.